0: I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream podcast, where we explore what you need to know about the intersection of science, technology, and society. This is Episode 5. But before we begin, just a brief announcement. Thank you to those supporting the show on Patreon. You can find us on patreon.com slash Kendall Giles. We are currently 75% of the way towards our goal of being able to upgrade to the next service tier on our podcast platform, Buzzsprout. I'm happy with Buzzsprout's service so far, especially because they have a free tier, which makes it easy for new podcasts to get up and running. Unfortunately, however, the catch is that the free tier removes episodes after 90 days and limits the amount of content you can upload per month. For the TechnoSlipstream podcast, we are already on episode five, and I'm running out of upload bandwidth for the month. Thus, unfortunately, today's episode will be shorter than I had planned. Also, the next episode will be delayed until the free tier timer resets, which appears to be in eight days as I record this episode. So please, if you can, head over to patreon.com slash Kendall Giles and subscribe to help out the show. Your support will make things so much easier from my end for scheduling, how much content to create, and when I can make it. And once we reach that goal, there's more I would like to do with the show so your continued support will really help. Okay, in this episode, we continue our deep dive series into automation and today we'll focus on algorithms. In episode three, where we looked at modern automation, especially robotic process automation, we discussed the role of various types of algorithms. Machine learning algorithms, artificial intelligence algorithms, natural language processing algorithms. These algorithms were critical for automating processes, especially for knowledge workers. So, just what is an algorithm, and how should we best understand their role in automation systems? The key is to understand that the algorithm is not just a collection of code written by a software developer. We get ourselves into trouble when we teach developers that way in school, and when we think that way on the job. Algorithms are much more than just bits and bytes of running code, especially in automation systems. So, as a way to help us start expanding our conception of what algorithms are and how best to interact with and understand them. I've selected two articles that might help us step back and think about algorithms in the context of technology and society as parts of the socio-technical infrastructures all around us in modern society. The first article is Algorithms and Automation, an Introduction by Ian Lowry. And the second article is Algorithms as Fetish, Faith and Possibility in Algorithmic Work by Suzanne Thomas, Don Nafis, and Jamie Sherman. Okay, let's dive in. So for our first article, Ian Lowry is an anthropologist with a PhD from Rice University. Currently, he is working to modernize how hospitals report their quality data to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. When he was still in academia, he published the article Algorithms and Automation, an Introduction, in 2018. So the discipline of anthropology is essentially the scientific study of human beings. And one way to study human beings is through scientific observational studies called ethnographies. Ian encountered a puzzle when doing ethnographic fieldwork in one particular data science community. Anthropologists are trained, for example, to study how humans use tools such as hammers or fire or language. Yet from studying the computer scientists, mathematicians, and electrical engineers in the field, Ian realized the automation systems those data scientists were building were not just extensions of human capabilities. The automation systems were actually replicating human capabilities, including human rationality. Those algorithms were not just tools. They weren't just hammers, especially AI automation systems that can bridge the digital world with our real analog world using sensors to gather data, process and make decisions independent of human control, and then operate on those decisions in the world. So, how should we be viewing algorithms? That's the puzzle Ian tries to unpack in this paper. Especially in engineering, we are often taught that an algorithm is just a recipe, a sequence of steps to be followed to accomplish some task. But a great quote from the article shows the limitations of that point of view. Quote, a recipe, even a really good one, isn't a bakery. The point is that the algorithm is meaningless without context. Especially for automation systems, you need what he calls algorithmic assemblages, combinations of digital and analog domains that includes the lines of code, sure, but also computer storage, CPUs, operating systems, networks, infrastructures, and people. Automation systems are what is known as sociotechnical systems. At some level, viewing automation systems in this way poses no problem for anthropologists. If you recall from episode three, where we discussed automation systems being used by grape farmers, in those new grape farms, some traditional human labor jobs like grape pickers are being replaced by automated grape pickers. And drivers of non-smart tractors are being replaced by drivers who have training to handle the automated tractors. So using traditional methods, the anthropologists could still follow the people studying the different human forms of labor on the grape farm, the jobs replaced because of automation, as well as the new emergent jobs on these automated farms. In this study approach, the automation systems are still essentially just tools, though, and humans are still in the loop of decision-making and control. But today, automation systems are being built to no longer need the human in the loop, to no longer require them for decision making and control. So, what then is the anthropologist to do? Ian's realization is that we must start learning to consider automation systems as things in themselves. We must consider automation systems on their own terms, not just as tools used by humans. This calls for more work, not on how the use of automation systems affects existing social structures, but more work on how the automation systems are actually built and function. So rather than performing ethnographies of human groups, which is traditionally how it's done, Ian is suggesting we learn more about how automation systems are built and function by performing ethnographies of the algorithmic assemblages. Now, that to me is very interesting, and I'd like to learn more about this. The study of automation systems as an emergent form by modifying existing ethnographical techniques and methods. From Ian's paper, it sounds like this idea is a new thing in anthropology, and so it's not clear exactly how to proceed. We evidently have reached the leading edge of ethnographic research methods, but That's the point of developing new scientific methods and systems to be able to tackle new problems and investigate new phenomena. The reason I think this is important is because in past studies of software and systems using the traditional human-centered approaches, the studies focused on how these automation systems affected other human groups. But since humans have a rather militant history focused on domination and hierarchy, previous conclusions about the effects of automation systems have been pessimistic. See, for example, episode two of this podcast, where we looked at industrial automation systems in the U.S. after World War II. But by centering our research efforts instead on the assembly of these automation systems, we might be able to see how automation systems could be used more optimistically and for building better worlds, instead of making them worse. At least that's my big takeaway, and I look forward to looking into that line of thinking. So thanks, Ian, for the article. And now for our second article. Okay, let me get this out of the way right at the beginning. Our next article, Algorithms as Fetish, Faith and Possibility in Algorithmic Work, has nothing to do with what you might be thinking. Probably to most people, at least in the U.S., a fetish is some sort of weird sexual obsession, like obsessing over feet or ankles. Don't worry, you didn't accidentally stumble onto that sort of podcast. Or maybe I should say sorry to disappoint you if you were were getting your hopes up about a paper discussing algorithms as objects of sexual obsession. When this article talks about algorithms as fetish, it's actually referring to the more obscure definition of the word, which is a fetish as an inanimate object possessing some spirit or magical power. We'll talk more about this in a moment, but I really wanted to clear the air and focus her attention before talking more about this paper. <clears throat> so with that out of the way, Algorithms as Fetish, Faith and Possibility in Algorithmic Work, is written by Suzanne Thomas, Dawn Nafis, and Jamie Sherman. Suzanne is an anthropologist and principal engineer at Intel Labs, with a Ph.D. in communications from the University of California at San Diego. Dawn is an anthropologist and senior research scientist also at Intel Labs, with a Ph.D. in anthropology from the University of Cambridge. And finally, Jamie is currently a senior product researcher at Netflix, though at the time of the article was written, she was a research scientist also at Intel, and she holds a PhD in anthropology from Princeton. In their use of fetish as the lens with which the authors are viewing the algorithms, the authors key on four specific attributes of fetish, capability, promise, faith, and possibility. A fetish is a material object that is given capabilities beyond those inherent to the object. Those extraordinary capabilities are generated at the intersection of different groups of people in contact with the object, say between developers and users of an algorithm, groups with different social, cultural, and economic expectations. Those different social, cultural, or economic expectations are projected onto the object and thus become part of the object's promise. And finally, the extraordinary powers and capabilities of the fetish actually become effective in that they enable something to happen that might not otherwise happen. In other words, to use a phrase from the paper, faith in a promise delivers possibility. So the purpose of their study is to investigate how algorithms gain these extraordinary powers as they change hands from one group to another. If you've ever heard algorithms described as magic black boxes, well, that's kind of what the authors are trying to unpack. Algorithms are interesting as objects of study, and I frankly don't think we study them enough. Depending on who you are talking to, the algorithm is a shape shifter. Its materiality changes. To some, an algorithm is a collection of math formula. To others, it's a flowchart. To others, it's a collection of lines of code. And to others, still, it's shapes on a screen or IoT devices that buzz in your pocket. So, to narrow these variations down for the study, the authors focus on algorithms as social contracts, as in the sense that developers might program algorithms based on a set of perceived requirements towards fulfilling some expectations of the users. The authors collected data by conducting ethnographies of two different communities of people creating and using algorithms in different ways. The first group the authors discuss is computer vision researchers. So computer vision is the disciplinary field around building algorithms that allow computers to see algorithms, to collect data, and to process digital images and video from cameras and sensors. Depending on the researcher, computer vision can mean one mathematical step, a series of steps, one algorithm, or a pipeline of algorithms. Essentially, computer vision researchers try to assemble these components, some written by previous computer vision researchers to create new algorithms that are better in some aspect than alternative or previous algorithms. Algorithms can then be published as formula, diagrams, or collections of code in a variety of programming languages. These completed algorithms can be given names, perhaps the name of the researcher, or perhaps some acronym based on what the algorithm is supposed to be able to do and it is here that we start to see how the algorithms gain their extraordinary powers. For example, you might have one algorithm named as the acronym SLAM for Simultaneous Localization and Mapping, or another algorithm might be named SFM for Structure from Motion. The authors point out that, like magic incantations, these names spell out the promise of what the lines of code or series of mathematical functions should do once they leave the hands of their creators to those chartered with their use. With algorithms, there are two broad categories of people involved with them, algorithm makers and algorithm users. For the most part, the algorithm makers are just that, they are the artisans of the algorithm. It is when the algorithm is transferred from the makers to the users that these extraordinary fetish powers get transferred. This categorization can be tricky, though, since often the algorithm makers are also users of algorithms others have previously made. Also, is the software developer or systems engineer, folks who often just implement designs given to them by architects or pure algorithm designers? Are they makers or users? So the boundaries are not often clear and memberships can change. However, once the algorithm is in the hands of the user, there is often a simultaneous belief and disbelief in the capabilities of the algorithm. Since the user didn't actually create the algorithm, there's a bit of magic or mystery involved with how it works. Users expect the system to work, but may be overwhelmed or underwhelmed with how well the system works. The authors conclude their investigation into computer vision researchers with, quote, the promise that computers can see fuels professionals to continue their work, to be a part of making this magic happen. It allows them to forget for a moment the Hours of labor onerously drawing bounding boxes on video footage or rewriting camera APIs to ensure different camera feeds can be similarly analyzed. It allows them to mistake their and others' labor for the workings of a truly powerful, awe-inspiring algorithm. Now, this may be a subtle point, but when viewed through the lens of the fetish, the algorithm gains these extra powers when transferred from one group to another. Unfortunately, because of my podcast platform hosting limitations I mentioned at the start of the episode, I won't be able to discuss the author's other findings from ethnographical research in quantified self-communities. But those findings support their work with the computer vision communities. Algorithms as math or lines of code get imbued with promises and possibilities as the algorithms pass from makers to users. We have computer systems that can see, though really they can just barely recognize us when we're in good lighting. And we have these magic Apple watches that will help us get into shape by reminding us to stand on the hour and measure our heartbeat. It is the agency we project onto these devices that gives the algorithms their additional power to motivate us to get out of the chair, for example, and start exercising, to nudge us into healthy behaviors we might not have otherwise performed. A beautiful phrase in the paper captures this effect wonderfully. The authors call this magical realism in practice. And as an aside, if you're not familiar with the reference to magical realism— Once you finish listening to this episode, consider reading Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis or The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle by Haruki Murakami or 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez or The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. But the bigger takeaway from this paper, at least for me, is that given this awareness now, that we give extra power to algorithms, especially when we are removed from their construction, I think it is important that we be careful how much power we give them, as marketers and Silicon Valley types might try to do. The larger point is that we need to be careful we don't turn algorithms into virtual gods or monsters. And so hopefully from looking at both of these papers in this episode, you might agree that algorithms are clearly more than just code. And with that, we wrap up episode 5 of the Techno Slipstream podcast. Thank you for listening, and please be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support this podcast, consider heading over to patreon.com slash Giles to our Patreon page to sign up. I really could use your support so these episodes don't get removed and to allow for more upload bandwidth so I can create more content. In addition to supporting the show on Patreon, you can sign up to get the show transcripts, including links to the articles and the books discussed in each episode. In any case, again, thanks for listening, and until next time, I'll see you in the Techno Slipstream.